sometimes. I, I woke up this morning, I was like, I know I got to preach, but this rain and the thunder, it's nice and dark. So I commend you for being here. I know it took at least a bit more of an effort than normal. Um, also, if you're a dad, uh, we want to wish you a happy Father's Day. And if you are a visitor, we want to make sure you know that you are very welcome, and we're glad to worship with you. These cards right here we have um, serve two purposes. The first one is to, if you're visiting and you're looking for a church home, um, we want you to understand some of the things that are important to us, some of the things we believe, and so that's the top blue part of this card. The bottom part is information that we'd love to get from you to get you plugged in, to contact you if you would like, um, and to give you um, information so you can make informed decisions and kind of know what's going on. So um, if you could fill that out and drop it in the little offertory satchel that'll go around um, at the end. That is not a trash can for the, for, the, um, for the cups. That is an offertory thing. But you can put this in there as well. You can put your cup in there if you want. We don't care. We'll, we'll take care of it. Um, so um, uh, we welcome you, and we're glad you're here. Let's pray together, and then we will dive into the Word. Lord, we come to you now humbly, and um, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to to gather together as a people who share unity in Christ and to go to the Word. I'm thankful that we can do that. We don't have to whisper, um, but that we have the, the freedom to do that. I'm thankful for the access we have to our Lord that exists only in Christ. Specifically this morning, I'd like to pray for uh, First Baptist Church Cash, and I'm just thankful for um, some email conversation I was able to have with them this week um, to see to know there's bodies that are like-minded, who see us as teammates, who want to be sharpened and encouraged by one another, is always an encouragement, Lord. And so I'm thankful for those conversations and pray that their time in worship this morning is sweet. We pray for Pastor uh, Larry Combs as, uh, as he's recovering from um, some, uh, some hardships and just pray that you would encourage him this morning. I pray that he has enjoyed you this week as he brings the word. And I pray also for their worship minister as, as he's had some, some hard times as well. And um, just so thankful for his faithfulness to lead in song. And so pray that their time is, is sweet this morning and that you would um, encourage them uh, through your word. Lord, we also want to continue to pray uh, for our city government here. That they would lead in such a way as to really bless this city. And we pray that um, their leadership also provides a... a uh, an environment that is, is conducive for the forward movement of, of the gospel. Uh, we pray that you would bless them and encourage them, and as, as even the still new uh, city council uh, starts doing work together, that they would uh, do so in a way without um, personal agendas, but that they would really genuinely want to be there to represent people in, in each of their districts. Lord, we also pray for those in South Carolina that are mourning this morning, um, some of them this being their first Father's Day without a father. Um, as we gather here, um, your, your word tells us to be mindful of those who are suffering um, in many different capacities throughout the world who are, who are brothers and sisters in Christ and to see the terrible things, nightmarish things that happened to them this week. Um, my prayer is that you would bless them and comfort them, that you would give them peace that exceeds understanding and that you would be present with them um, in a way that no one else can. Surround them with love and with others who will encourage them to stay the course. Lord, for our time this morning, I pray that I would be out of the way, that I would not give much thought to myself, but that I would do the work you've called me to. And I pray that your word would do um, what no man can do. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, 
Ben McGraw is the guy who does the majority of the preaching. He probably does 70% of it. We have three elders that lead this body, and we rotate in and out um, preaching, and then others sometimes preach. And over the course of the last 12 years, they didn't allow me to preach for the first few years. It took some time to get up to that. You know, just launch off into that. I'd have said something dumb and embarrassed everybody. I I might do that today. Um, But um, in those 12 years, I've generally felt led to preach thematically and, and topically. Um, meaning that if I'm going to have like one, two, maybe three sermons, I just want to cover something particular from the Word, um, like prayer or disciplines. Those are some of the things we've gone through. Um, But through prayer and through consideration, um, I've decided to start preaching expositorily or expositionally. I'm not actually sure which word is right, expositorily or expositionally. We'll use them interchangeably. Um, But I've decided to do that through the book of Romans, Um, and and I'm really pretty encouraged um, at the, at the potential there and the possibilities. So the reason I share that with you at the beginning of the sermon is this is a significant um, thing for us as a church. This is the first time since the birth of this church that all three pastors are preaching through books expositorily. Ben is preaching through Romans or through Ephesians and, and Isaiah. He's already done John and Hebrews. Brad is preaching through 1 Timothy. I'll be preaching through Romans. When we start Wednesday nights back up in the fall, we'll be going through the minor prophets. So um, it should be clear that what we hope for, for this body is, is to have more of the word, not just our reactive thoughts on things going on in culture necessarily, but letting the word address those things. Um, and so uh, in his newest book on preaching, Tim Keller, he, he says this about expository preaching. When I say expository preaching, I mean verse by verse through a book, not skipping over the hard parts, not skipping over the uncomfortable parts, but, but really being true to the word and staying the course through entire books at a time. And Tim Keller, in his new book, he says, expository preaching enables God to set the agenda for your Christian community. Expository preaching enables God to set the agenda for your Christian community, and we want you to know that that is our goal here. We want God setting the agenda, telling us what to do, telling us how to do it. And so that's why we preach in this manner. Which brings us to Romans, my history with Romans. I've got a little history with Romans um, um, that I want to share before we launch off into the preaching of it. In my early days of ministry here at Crosspoint, I came on as the music and youth guy, which that's pretty normal to have a guy who does those two things, music and youth. And over the years, that progressed to worship and families. And then it progressed to whatever in the world it is today. In those early years as a youth minister, I I started teaching through Romans, and the story behind it is is a little humorous because I really had no idea what I was getting into when I came here or or when I started Romans. One of my first studies, there was this young whippersnapper named Patrick Fields, and uh, in one of the first studies uh, where I was trying to figure out what am I doing here and who are these kids, um, he he informed me eloquently that um, he looked at me and said, "Uh, Pastor Scott, uh, I only read two books. The Bible and Hank the Cow Dog. <laughs> I just thought as a new minister, I thought, what kind of hillbilly redneck thing have I gotten into? I'm from North Dallas. I have no idea how to minister to these kids. If, are they all like that? Was it even in that order? Does he read the Bible first or is it Hank the Cow Dog? I didn't know. I heard Patrick's comments. He's 26 now, Patrick is. I texted him and said, hey, how old are you? 26. I thought he was messing with me. So apparently I've known you for half your life. He was like 13 or 14 when he said, I'll read the Bible and hike the cow dog. I'll never forget it. I heard his comments, and I mentioned to the current elders at the time, they weren't actually elders yet, they were called staff bearers. Um, we'd, 
We didn't have all of our stuff together at the beginning, that's for sure. Um, but they were called staff bearers, whatever that is. And, um, and I mentioned to them that we needed some depth. Like we had to do something and we needed to do something fast because Hank the cow dog was step two after the Bible apparently. And so um, I, need, I needed depth and we needed to know what to do with our youth. And, and I really wasn't sure as, as a guy in my early 20s who was quite confused in the moment. And uh, Ron Perone, who's now a, an elder out at C3, our church plant in commerce, he was here, and he, and he looks at me and he says, um, some ministers might consider just preaching through a book of the Bible. <laughs> like that was a new concept. It kind of blew my mind. Like that wasn't the norm around here, and it certainly wasn't the norm for youth ministry. And so he said, uh, you, you know, some, some guys might consider just teaching through a book of the Bible. I said, okay, which one? That was my response. And he said, well, there's a pastor named John Piper who's currently teaching through Romans. And I said, okay, Romans it is. That is the deep process that we went through to jump into Romans the first time. And I started teaching it the next week without actually having read through the entire book of Romans. I, I, I went with Howard Hendricks' study in Romans and said, all right, let's just dive in. And I had no idea what I was getting into. I probably wouldn't have taught it had I read through it first. But the next three years held treasure in store that was sweet and unexpected, and I genuinely don't know that I've ever had a season of more significant growth than in those early days when I was in the book of Romans. So having taught through this book, I'm very excited to get to preach through it, because preaching and teaching are different things. So um, with much anticipation, I've been waiting to say this, please turn to Romans 1. Turn to Romans 1. One thing I learned... When I began this book the first time, is something that we have to take into account today. And it's the same thing that we took into account a few weeks ago when we started Ephesians. And it is that context is very important. Context is very important. The who, what, when, where of what's going on around the time the book was written and who wrote it is very, very important, especially in this significant letter to the church in Rome. So we're going to utilize this opening text to engage the context. And I want you to know the majority of this sermon is going to be those details that make sense of these opening lines from Paul. So we're going to have to do work the same way we did in Ephesians a few weeks ago. So um, we're going to end with a one major sermon point and a few possibilities of application. So Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ. This should sound familiar. It's very similar to the introduction in Ephesians, which he wrote about six years later. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be as saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In these opening verses, we find who is writing and who is being written to. We find within the first seven verses that Paul is writing a letter to the church in Rome. We've got to be real clear on what's going on here. Paul is writing a letter to the church in Rome. Now, Paul has a background. Rome has a background. 
The church in Rome has a background, and those are the three things we're going to consider this morning before we get to our sermon point. Paul's background, Rome's background, and the church in Rome's background. We need to do the work of understanding the events that brought this letter about so that we can understand why Paul opens the letter the way that he does. It's not completely normal to to begin a letter the way that Paul began his letter. It is unique in some special and specific ways, and to make any sense of that, we need a little bit of this background on why Paul wrote what he wrote. So here's Paul's background. Paul, the author, is writing this letter from Corinth in AD 57. With that statement, I probably lost half the room. So wake up. It's background. Paul, I just, I just told you about a guy who you haven't met who wrote a letter that you haven't yet read from a city that you have not visited during a time period that you can't really wrap your head around. Personally, that's about the time that I might say, I, I, you lost me. Who cares about that? These details are important. So write it down in your notes. Paul, the author, is writing this letter from Corinth in AD 57. This is our starting point for the morning. When I was explaining these details to my wife, she said, look, if you're going to go all background on us instead of just preaching, I'm going to need some visuals. So what my baby wants, my baby gets. This is for my wife. If y'all would like to utilize it, you may as well. Um, We need to understand some of these connections on who wrote what. And when? Because it all makes sense. Sometimes we read, we will read things like Romans and think, well, he wrote it while he was in Rome. No, he was somewhere else. Or Corinthians, he was somewhere else. Ephesians, he was somewhere else. So I want us to understand what happened in the few years leading up to him writing this letter because it is very, very significant. In 53 to 55 AD, Paul is serving in Ephesus over here. There's another visual. Ephesus is over here. And he's writing his first letter to the church in Corinth, which is over here, across, I think it's the Aegean Sea right there. I could be wrong because there's two bodies of water. But he's writing from here to over here. He is in Ephesus, and he's writing his first letter to the church in Corinth. About a year later, he moves northwest to Macedonia. That's my northwest, your northeast probably. Just go with me on this. It's a triangle. That's all you need to know. He's right here. He writes to over here, and then he moves up northwest to Macedonia, to write the second letter to the church in Corinth. There were four letters to Corinth. We have two of them. A year later, Paul goes on down to Corinth. So he goes from here to here to here. And when he gets to Corinth, that is where he writes his famous letter to the church in Rome, which is what we are calling Romans, what we're engaging here this morning. And for a little bit of context, for us as a body, his letter to the Ephesians is... Five years later, he, he had already gone to Rome. So he went from over here to here to here, and then he goes to Rome. And when he gets in Rome, he gets imprisoned. He has all kinds of hardship. And in fact, that's when he writes his letter to the church in Ephesus. So from over here, he writes his letters. So are, are we seeing all this? Use the visual. Use the visual. It's very, very helpful to understand who's doing what, when, where, and why, and how. So Paul's plan is this. Look at Romans 1. In Corinth... Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and these are the intentions that he expresses. Look at verses 11 and 12 in chapter 1. For I long to see you. He has a passion for the church in Rome, and he's never been there before. 
You might ask yourself, would I have a passion for a church somewhere that I have never been? And there's a reason he has that passion. We're going to get to it in a little bit. But just from the back, from right off the bat, I long to see you. Why? That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So that's the first goal that he has in writing this letter to the church in Rome. I want to see you, I want to give you a spiritual gift that will strengthen you, and I want to have a little bit of iron sharpening iron. I want to benefit from you, and I want you to benefit from me, and I really am looking forward to it. The second thing is actually found at the end of the book. we got these bookends that, that, that explain what's happening in the body of this letter. So turn over to Romans 15, the end of the book. In Romans 15, we're going to look at verses 24 through 29, and this explains... His other intentions. This is some background. 15, 24 through 29. Paul says this. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. So here he's making very clear what his plans are, what his intentions are. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them in Jerusalem what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So go ahead and put up slide two. That's right, two visuals, everybody. I want us to be clear about Paul's ambitions, what, he's want, what he has just expressed in this little background of what he plans to do. First, he wants to serve the worldly church in Corinth. That was where he was writing from. And the, we know about the church in Corinth. They were all kinds of sideways and backwards and not right. And he was very gently and patiently serving the church in Corinth, where he was writing this letter from. And they, I mean, they were getting drunk on communion, they were getting into fights, there was all kinds of sexual immorality. This church was really, really messed up. And so he's got a passion to help them. The second thing is he wants to serve the poor Christians in Jerusalem. There are Christians in Jerusalem who do not have as much, and they are suffering because of their lack. And he wants to help them. The third thing, to help them, this means he's going to collect an offering from Macedonia and Achaia. So he's going to have to do some legwork and some traveling to get these things so that he can go and bless the poor saints in Jerusalem. The fourth thing that he, that he, that he says he wants to do is strengthen and mutually encourage the church in Rome. He wants to have some genuine heart-to-heart time with them. He doesn't want to be rushed in it. He wants it to be good and pure and edifying and encouraging. And then the last thing he communicates there is he wants to continue the gospel work in Spain. I don't know about you, but I think Paul looks pretty ambitious here, right? That's pretty ambitious. That's a lot of stuff. Like you add anything to that list and then all of a sudden someone can be quickly overwhelmed if they're not already overwhelmed. That's a lot of ambition that is surrounding the details in the background of why he wrote this letter to the church in Rome. Go ahead and leave that slide up for a couple minutes while people write down notes if they want. So that's Paul's background. 
That's what he has communicated just in the intro and just at the end of the book on what he wants to do. This brings us to the part about who the letter is actually being written to. Paul wants the church in Rome to support his ministry in Spain. Paul wants the church in Rome to support his ministry in Spain. In his view, a healthy church in Rome will promote a healthy church beyond Rome. Do you hear that? That's not hard for us to conceptualize. That's like saying, let's not plant a church if we are all kinds of, of backwards and sideways and not in accordance with the gospel. But once we are healthy and once we have some things in order, let's go ahead and plant a church. It's saying, you can't go and be a part of other work that's healthy if you yourself aren't healthy. You've got to care for that local body. And so the local body there in Rome, he wanted them to be healthy for the sake of Spain and beyond. So the reason for this is that Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire. So when I say he's written to the church in Rome, man, we could spend years talking about the history of Rome and the architecture in Rome and the culture in Rome, but we're not going to. We're going to take about 30 seconds. Rome was the center, the capital of the Roman Empire at that time that Paul wrote this letter. The Roman Empire had grown from a city established on seven hills on the Tiber River to the most powerful empire that the world had seen. Rome's background, it was a pagan culture. Rome was a pagan culture. It, it, this might be kind of hard for us to think about because we have a bunch of different churches here in Greenville, I think almost 100 of them. I passed six of them in my two-mile drive to work. And generally, they're all worshiping the same God. We don't have any that are overtly saying, no, 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 we're worshiping Mars. Or we're worshiping some pagan god that we've made up. We're, we're, we're headlong into just mythology. We don't have a lot of that around here. We generally have a lot of people who have sometimes very different be beliefs, but all within the same faith. Rome, way different context. Rome was a largely pagan culture that was marked by pagan worship, where everything you looked at, you were surrounded by pagan architecture. That was Rome. The prestige of the early emperors was memorialized during Paul's day in the architecture, and the basilicas, and the arches, and the forums. There were the forums of Caesar, the forums of Augustus, and the altar of peace, the mausoleum of Augustus, and porticos and images honoring their extended imperial family. And these worldly leaders were also memorialized in imperial cult temples, that would be like saying, hey, where's the most popular cult temple? I want to put my face on the wall so people know who I am. I mean, it's a pretty messed up situation here. And, and it's probably something that we need to understand these details to wrap our heads around. Just so you know, most of these details are in your ESV study Bible. That's a plug for the ESV study Bible. These details, background, literary features, who wrote it, when they wrote it, are in your study Bible. But what we need to see here is that innumerable pagan gods received worship in Rome. That's a little bit different from our context here. So we need to know the background to try to wrap our heads around what it must have been like to be the church in such a setting. Especially impressive temples were dedicated to ancient gods and goddesses like Mars, Saturn, Castor and Pollux, Vesta, Venus, Roma, Apollo, and Jupiter. That would be bizarre if we had a bunch of temples dedicated to people, to fictional, not true things such as that here in our town. Indeed, devotion to all of the great Roman gods was offered in the monumental domed pantheon. That's something that we're all probably more familiar with, the pantheon, this massive domed thing which stands in Rome to this day. So what I want you all to see this morning 
is that the residents of Rome were mostly pagan. But there was a sizable Jewish population that existed in Rome. Write that in your notes. Mostly pagan people, but there was a sizable Jewish population that had a history, a thousand-year history of, of walking with God. It wasn't a perfect walk, but they had a relationship with God. The reason that's important is this. That Jewish population is who would become the Christian church in Rome. That Jewish population was the beginnings of the church in Rome, which leads us to a background for the church in Rome. So you're already two-thirds of the way through background, and y'all are doing it. The church in Rome. Think about what it must have been like to be totally committed to God in that setting. It was only about 20 years old at the time. It was made up of Jews and Gentiles, and Paul makes it very clear in his intro that he's never been there. He didn't establish that church. He hasn't yet visited that church, but he's very passionate about getting there. It's most likely that it was established by Jews who returned to Rome after visiting Jerusalem for Pentecost. I want you all to turn to Acts chapter 2 because this is a really sweet connection. Acts chapter 2, the book before Romans. What would happen annually is the Jews would go to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, and Pentecost was a celebration of when God gave them the law on Mount Sinai. So this was something that was customary. By their custom, they would go to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, which was the first giving of the law at Mount Sinai. So let's look at what happens when these Jews from Rome go to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Read, don't read out loud, read quietly with me the first 12 verses. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, they including the Jews from Rome. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The timing of this is about seven weeks or 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. So the world has been shaken up significantly by this first person who has ever conquered death known as King Jesus. So we're seven weeks out and this happens. A mighty rushing wind it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in, in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Easy for me to say. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So all of the Jews from every nation under heaven, including Rome, went here. And at this sound... The multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome... Those are the Jews from Rome. Visitors from Rome, um, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They are hearing the gospel for the first time in their own tongue. And this is a significant moment for the Christian church. People refer to this moment here as the birth of the Christian church. As members, as largely Gentiles who've been grafted in, 
you should be floored by this reality. This was the birth of the Christian church. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So these Jews who were at Pentecost went back to Rome and began to establish the Christian church. But what I want you to remember, this is important for the background of the letter to Rome, is that not all of the Jews who heard that responded to the gospel positively. It was those who the Spirit fell on them who responded positively. The ones with the Holy Spirit are the ones who went back to Rome and started the Christian church, but some of them, particularly a guy named Saul, despised the gospel, hated the message. And from that point forward, as you read through the book of Acts, for a few chapters, a Jew named Saul, later Paul, who would write the letter to Rome, did terrible things to the church. He entered homes and persecuted the church in Jerusalem violently, dragging men and women from their homes, imprisoning them, and speaking murder to them. He wasn't just the kind of guy who was quietly, you know, a part of the guard and executing tasks, and okay, you got to go to jail. He despised them. He didn't just want them to go to jail, but as he's ripping them out of their houses, he's looking at them and speaking murder to them, telling them how they're going to die, because he hated the gospel. He hated the message. And Saul continued to do that until his Damascus Road conversion, where he later became Paul. Why is that background important? This is why. Pay attention. He continued to do that until his conversion in Jerusalem. Given the amount of damage that Paul did in Jerusalem at the, birth place, at the, at the time of the birth of the Christian church, given the amount of damage that Paul did particularly to those poor Christians in Jerusalem, it makes sense and it gives us a lot of insight into why 20 years later after his conversion, he was very passionate about taking an offering to the suffering saints in Jerusalem. Do you see that connection? Does it make sense why background's important there? When all of this happened and those, those first Jews were there and going to Rome to establish the church and they faced the first persecution, the first persecution was at the hands of Saul and it was brutal. And here, 20 years later, we see the impact of the gospel on his life when he is passionate about going and and ministering to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Without background, we wouldn't see that detail. So over the years, that church, we're, we're back in Rome now, over the years, that church that was established by the converted Jews began to grow. And as is the gospel message, Gentiles began to be converted as well. So you have this church where there's Jews and Gentiles, and it's growing. And in AD 49, about six years before this letter was written, an emperor named Claudius was tired of the growth. He was a leader who was saying, I haven't sponsored this growth, and this whole, all these kingdoms are about the leaders, and I, I'm not the one whose name is on this growing thing, so let's go ahead and squash it. It's not about me, so I want to squash it. And so what he did is he started this effort, which was a pretty lame effort, to try to kick all the Jews out of Rome, to try to expel them. And it didn't go so well. Many of them left for a few years, but it was just a few years later that they came back. Check this out. While they were gone, while they were away, the church continued to grow in pagan Rome because of the Gentiles who were committed to the gospel and following Jesus. And so when they came back, what you had were Jews and Gentiles in the same church who were all professing Christ, and it was a church that had grown while those Jews were gone. Now, 
A church made up of Jews and Gentiles is a church that has significant differences in it. Something I've always been kind of bummed out about is how Christians are terrible at disagreeing. We are generally not very good at disagreeing. When someone has a different belief than we have, we go, we take the offensive, and we, we are not quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We get angry, and we speak. And then maybe later we remember that verse after we've ripped someone's head off because they disagree with us. Romans 14, something we'll get to, talks about having different beliefs within the same faith. There have never been more significant different beliefs in the same faith than that which existed between the Jews and the Gentiles in this baby church in Rome. Huge differences. I'm going to draw on some of the racial tension that we experience and we have experienced, even here in Greenville with this ridiculous sign that used to hang over downtown and some of the racial tension that even still exists here that is absolutely ungodly and has nothing to do with the gospel in case you're a part of it. If the KKK and Black Panthers were a part of the same church, all saying they love Jesus but hate each other. If the KKK and Black Panther members were a part of the same church, the differences that exist between them wouldn't come near to the depth of differences that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Really try to wrap your head around that because that would be a terrifying environment, would it not? Oh, we're going to have the KKK over here and the Black Panthers over here. Let's have church. Yeah, right. It's going to go terribly wrong. Here, the differences between Jews and Gentiles is not just ethnic. It is ethnic, but it's not only ethnic. The differences between the Jews and Gentiles is deeply theological. It doesn't have to just do with their opinions or their preferences of a skin color or their preferences of a race. It has to do with their view of God. The Jews are saying for, over, for hundreds of thousands of years, this is our view of God, and this is how we approach God, and the Gentiles can't do that because they're not gods. And so for thousands of years, we've got these differences between how to approach God, what, what's pleasing to God, what is God like, what does it mean to be a child of God. And these Jews and Gentiles, the differences that existed between them are greater than any differences you've ever seen that existed between two people who even hate each other. Very significant differences. So one of the significant topics of the letter is addressing those differences. Remember, Paul needs the church in Rome to be beautiful. Remember what was revealed in that background info. Paul needs the church in Rome to be beautiful, to be unified, and it's made up of a bunch of people who don't know how to be Christians together. We don't know how to sit down at the same dinner table together. This meat that's sacrificed to idols is evil, and I'm not going to touch it. And the Gentiles are saying, that's a good ribeye. I'll eat that meat. Who cares? Those idols are fake. Their views are so different, and in Christ, they've been brought to the same table. And so Paul's saying, I got some work to do in the church in Rome, because if they're not beautiful and they're not unified, it'll be to the detriment of the healthy church in Spain. He needs them to be healthy. He needs them to be unified and not divided so that they can become a healthy sending church for the work in Spain. And get this, to make matters worse... An added hurdle, neither the Jews or Gentiles trust Paul very much. Oh, okay, you're going to be the conflict reconciliation expert between people who have greater differences than anyone else in the history of people, and neither of them trust you. Is that a daunting task or what? Paul has, the, the Jews are looking at Paul with suspicion saying, um, 
didn't you used to be a Jew? Are you a traitor? Can I trust you? And the Gentiles are looking at Paul saying, I think I remember you um, uh, brutally treating my brothers and sisters in Christ in a terrible manner. And so none of them really trust Paul. So not only does he have to bring them together, he has to get them to trust him. So go ahead and put that third slide up. That's three visuals. Three, count them. I want us to see how ambitious Paul is. Paul is quite ambitious, to say the least. This is why background is important. These are Paul's ambitions. We've already seen serve the worldly church in Corinth, serve the poor Christians in Jerusalem, collect the offering from Macedonia and Achaia, strengthen and mutually encourage the church in Rome, eventually continue that gospel work in Spain, and while you're at it, reconcile the differences between Jews and Gentiles. But first, you're going to have to get them to trust you, and then once you do that, once you accomplish that, we're going to make sure we have established a healthy sending church in Rome. Oh, by the way, do all of this in an intensely pagan culture that is constantly fighting for the desires of the people whose desires you want to capture for Christ. Does Paul have a lot to do? Yes. The answer is yes. That is daunting to say the least. Serve, 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 fix, fix, fix. Oftentimes, that's why ministry seems impossible. There's always something. And there's always like 10 hurdles before that one hurdle that you already knew about. You're like, we got to do that. Oh, wait, there's a hurdle here. There's a hurdle here. There's a hurdle here. Oh, and I'm going to make some stupid decisions, and I'm going to create three more hurdles that aren't necessary. We're fallen, fragile, common people. So to say the least, Paul's quite ambitious. Turn back to Romans 1. You made it through the background. Congratulations. I will give each of you a gold star at the end of the morning. Romans 1. Here is your one point for the morning. This is your one point. In order for Paul to be committed to Rome, it says in this first verse, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And he goes on for six verses to explain what the gospel is. That's what we're going to start exploring next week. But for Paul to be committed to Rome, for Paul to be committed to the Jews, for Paul to be committed to the Gentiles, for Paul to be committed to Spain, for Paul to be committed to conflict reconciliation, for Paul to be committed to the poor saints in Jerusalem, to the screwed up backwards church in Corinth, to a healthy sending church in Rome, he must first be committed to the gospel. Otherwise, it'll never work. He'll never stay the course. He'll never have the goods if he is not first, first committed to the gospel before he tries to tackle this daunting list of necessary ministry. That's your point for the morning. He had to first be committed to the gospel. The gospel is Paul's introduction. The gospel in this text is Paul's identity. The gospel is Paul's appeal to the Jew and Gentile to trust him because they trust the gospel. The gospel is Paul's plan for the reconciliation of the Jew and Gentile. The gospel is the hope of Spain. He had to first be committed to the gospel. Now, what does that mean? We're going to explore what that means in the coming weeks, particularly the next week. But I want to just give you a, a short phrase to try to capture what it means to be committed to the gospel. Because I think that's the first question you ask when you hear that. Okay, I get it. He's got to be committed to the gospel. What does that mean? And this is what it means in a very short phrase that we'll explore more as we go through Romans. To be committed to the gospel is to never stray from the reality of Jesus. Jesus. 
So never shelve the part about Jesus because you're so busy being committed to what you're committed to. To be committed to the gospel is to never stray from the reality of Jesus in every circumstance, in every decision, in every challenge, in every trial. We aim to consider every part of the redemptive story of Christ and how it applies to the situation. That is what it means to live a gospel life. That is what it means to have a gospel marriage. That is what it means to have a gospel home and to be gospel parents. We never stray from the reality of Jesus. It is never secondary. It is never something we try to import to our plan we've already made. It is absolutely important to be first committed to the gospel. To stray from God's redemptive plan in Christ is to assert that you have a better plan. Do you hear me on that? Because everyone in this room is guilty of asserting that we have a better plan somewhere. That's what it means to stray from the gospel of Christ. To stray from God's redemptive plan in Christ is to assert that you have a better plan. It is the thing that Adam and Eve did. And that's why it's so good. That's why the gospel is good news. Because gospel realities precede garden realities. We're going to explore that more next week too. Gospel realities precede garden realities. Don't stray from the redemptive plan in Christ and assert that you have a better plan. The reality is we do this all over the place. So, fathers, I'm sorry that today is more about Jesus than it is about you during our time, but I'm not sorry, but here's a a jewel, a gem for you, fathers. Here on Father's Day, you cannot be genuinely committed to your children unless you are first genuinely committed to the gospel. That's how that plays out. That's how we apply such things. You cannot be first committed to your children. You cannot be genuinely committed to your children unless you're first committed to the gospel. Husbanding, wiving, fathering, mothering, being a Christian worker at a pagan business, being a friend to both believers and non-believers. If you're not first committed to the gospel, it won't work. You'll, be, you'll, turn into, you'll turn a million things into idols. You'll become more committed to the thing. The thing about being committed to the gospel is when you are engaging someone with the gospel who hasn't heard it, they're, they're genuinely always committed to other things. So when you're going to tell someone the gospel, you better be convinced. You don't just float it out there as, well, have you thought about this? Would you, baby, cons-? you need to be convinced as to what you believe. Romans 14, be fully convinced as to what you believe, but be completely teachable. When you present the gospel to other people, you have to be fully convinced and committed to the gospel first because they're genuinely committed to other things. And if you're not committed to the gospel, so often I'll get wrapped up in their other things. They, they have this agenda. They want to serve the poor. There's nothing wrong with that. But you can't do it well if you're not first committed to the gospel. They want to relieve racial tension. Fantastic. You're not going to do it well if you're not first committed to the gospel. You can't be more about the thing than the gospel itself. It's foundational. So, husbanding, wiving, mothering, fathering, being a Christian worker, being a friend, if you're not first committed to the gospel, it's just not going to work. Church planting won't work if you're not first committed to the gospel. So there's an example I want to share with you, and it's actually a very sad uh, dynamic that exists among empty nesters right now. I've read a number of articles on this where there is a new dynamic in our country among empty nesters, people whose last kid has... Um, left the house. 
I actually, my little brother is about 10 years younger than me, and he recently left the house. He kind of goes back and leaves and goes back and leaves. We're in that process. But he's mostly left the house. And I told my parents, Mom and Dad, I've read these articles. I was like, I'm genuinely concerned for y'all, and I'm praying for y'all's marriage, and here's why. There's a new sad dynamic among empty nesters where once the kids are out of the house, these couples who've been married for 20, 30, or even 35 years decide to go ahead and get a divorce. Why? Once the children are gone, they're not interested in living with this stranger who's their spouse. They had 35 years where they were committed to the children. Committed to the children. I spoke with a friend of mine this week. He was heartbroken. He just found out his parents of years and years are divorcing because they were committed to the children, but they were not first committed to the gospel. It's, it, it, it's so sad, and it's so prevalent. By being first dedicated to their children, you do both a disservice to your children and to your marriage. Had they been first committed to the gospel, the thought of divorce would have made very little sense. They would have been found moving in the gospel and staying in step with the Spirit and seeking to honor Christ in everything through those years. It doesn't mean they weren't dedicated to their kids. That would be rightly dedicated to your kids by being first committed to the gospel. That's how this plays out. Do you see the implications, the kind of things that happen if we're not first committed to the gospel? This happens all the time. I guarantee there are people sitting in here who have experienced this dynamic of empty nesters getting a divorce. Maybe you're one of them. Redemption is found in Christ. You're not, you're not done Redemption's found in Christ. Maybe it's your parents. Guess what? Christ offers encouragement and redemption. The only way to make things right is to return to the gospel. Here's another example. This one's a little more personal. I keep a journal. It's not a diary. Those are for girls. (laughs) It's a journal. It's manly. It's dark leather bound. This week I went back and I spent some time reading through my first days at Crosspoint because it's been a very reminiscent week, sort of very nostalgic as I'm digging back into Romans. And in 2003, I came on part-time and I worked really hard for a full year to try to become full-time in 2004. So I went back and read through those days in my journal. In the days leading up to going full-time, my journal was full of hope, it was full of excitement, it was full of anticipation, it was full of passion for the gospel, it was I wanted to not have to do other jobs and drive back and forth to Dallas, I wanted to be here, I wanted to be fully committed, I didn't want to be distracted, and I was fired up. I was encouraged by that dude that I was reading in those early days. Almost immediately upon going full-time, my journal changed. My journals were filled with a whole lot of, oh, Lord, what have I done? I live here now. I live in Greenville. This work is hard. I'm doing everything I know how, and none of it's working. I apparently don't love people as much as you do. Are you encouraged that that was your pastor's journal entries? Honestly, it was hard to read. I had a hard time reading it because I'm looking at it going, what a stinking whiner. I want to throw punch this guy. Pop him. Knock some sense into him. It was me. What a whiner. It was hard, hard, hard to read. I was more committed to the success of ministry and the growth of Cross Point Fellowship than I was committed to the gospel. 
That's what happened in those days. I was all excited to go full-time because I was more committed to successful ministry, success by my definition, which means lots of people need to be here or we must be doing something wrong. If there's not thousands of people here, we must be failures. I'd been... I'd had a lot of influence in my life by judging success by numbers only. A lot of people here, fired up. Not a lot of people here, we are terrible, we stink. We're letting God down. I was more committed to the success of ministry and the numerical growth of Crosspoint Fellowship than I was committed to the gospel. And though it was like a solid year of pathetic, whiny journal entries. If you've ever read The Life and the Diary of David Brainerd, so it was like reading that, but his, he was in a harder position than me. I was in Greenville. Um, but in 2005, I began teaching through the book of Romans. And I, I noticed a shift. I noticed a shift in my journal entries. I noticed a shift in my heart. I went from being discontent, confused, all over the map, a whiner, to being rekindled with that old hope and that excitement and that anticipation. And I think in teaching through Romans the first time, I share this as an example because I began to first be committed to the gospel rather than the ministry. Just the opening line of Paul saying, let's dive in. Here's who I am, gospel. Here's your plan, gospel. Here's what the letter's about, gospel. As I began to teach it, it reoriented my life from all these random, all over the map plans and hopes to gospel. And for the first time, I think, in 2005, I began to be committed to the gospel more than the ministry, committed to the gospel more than being a minister and a pastor, committed to the gospel more than being committed to my family, committed to the gospel more than being committed to the idea of children at the time, committed to the gospel more than committed to Crosspoint Fellowship. You should pray that for your pastors, that they're not more committed to this than they are the gospel. I hope the book of Romans has the same effect on this church. The warning for us this morning has been very, very clear from the word. You cannot be genuinely committed to anyone or anything until you are first committed to the gospel. That's the clear warning. But the encouragement. The encouragement, guys. The encouragement is look at what happens and what can be accomplished when you are first committed to the gospel. All this happened. All of it. I cannot imagine how small the gospel must have seemed in the pagan culture and community of Rome, in the empire of Rome. I can't imagine how small the gospel must have seemed when every time you lift up your eyes, you see arches and and architecture with faces and names of absolutely pagan gods and imperial royalty family who want to be esteemed and revered highly, and it's all worldly, worldly. Everywhere you look, the commerce is worldly, the trade is worldly, the way they do the water system in Rome is worldly. I cannot imagine how small and insignificant and powerless the gospel must have seemed. How insignificant it must have been in comparison to the power of the day. But here 2,000 years later, what do we know? 2,000 years later, Rome is a tourist destination. It is no longer a feared kingdom. You don't read a bunch of Fox News articles about, everybody watch out for Rome, they're coming to get us. No one's worried about Rome. Yet the kingdom of God, which started out as that small group of Jews from Jerusalem who were there for Pentecost, 
that small group who went back to Rome and the church began to spread. And even when they left to the Gentiles, it continued to spread. That is the kind of power that exists. These are the kinds of things that are actually accomplished. Reconciliation between those who are wildly different. Trust, encouragement, consistency, long-suffering. When Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he was in jail in Rome. And it looks like from the intro to Rome to six years later to the intro to Ephesians, remember, it's Paul, take a breath. You were so fired up about these blessings that you have in Christ. It was his dedication to the gospel that made him able to continue the work even when he was imprisoned, even when he was in shipwrecked, even when he was beaten. The commitment to the gospel kept him going. So here, no, no one fears Rome anymore, yet the kingdom of God has grown and has moved and has progressed by the power of Christ, and our God has never broken one single promise to us. That's what we're going to engage in Romans 8. We're going to see that no one is greater than God. He's always with us. We're going to see that throughout the book. We're going to see him achieving for us things in Christ that we can never achieve for ourselves. You don't want to just encourage people that they can achieve better things for themselves. You want to encourage people, hey, in Christ, he achieves things for you you could never achieve for yourself. That's the content of Romans. It's massively empowering. Those who are in Christ have achieved great things for his kingdom by putting the gospel first. Let's pray to that end as a body this morning. Lord, for weeks I've been looking at theologians and scholars who have just profound things to say about the book of Romans, and I admittedly feel small this morning as I try to give an intro to the greatest letter ever written. But I'm so thankful for the reminder of the power that exists in Christ and the things that we can achieve, the things that Paul achieved on this long list when we're first committed to the gospel of Christ, when we're first committed to the redemption story. Lord, help us to grow on our understanding of what it means to be committed to the gospel. I pray that we would each individually make significant efforts to try to consider what if we were more committed to the gospel in our work, in our parenting, in our marriages in our friendships, in our engagement of the community, in our view towards racism, in our view towards abortion, in our view towards any number of different things that need attention, how might we give it better attention if we first were committed to the gospel? Help us to understand that. Help us to grow in that. Thank you for being the one king who is not dead or currently dying. The one king who conquered death the one king who established a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that will go on forever. Lord, I pray that the realities we've engaged this morning in the text will give us an eternal perspective that raises our hopes and affects the way we live here now. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're about to take our supper. We take it every week because we are anticipating that one day Jesus is going to come back and take it with us. The marriage supper of the Lamb will be the next time he takes it. The last time he took it was the night before he was taken um, into custody and then shortly killed thereafter. It's anticipation when we take it each week. So in Luke chapter 22, it says this in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. 
And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That is what we are anticipating, and that is why we are first committed to the gospel. The kingdom of God is coming. That's the point of this supper. We remember and we anticipate. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We are remembering the gospel, the truth, and the redemption story of Jesus Christ as we take the supper. It's reflection, it's anticipation, it's remembrance. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant of my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to betray Jesus, who was going to do this. There was one guy at that table who was not first committed to the gospel. I want you all to keep that in mind as we distribute the elements and as we take the supper. There was one guy at the table who was not first committed to the gospel, and the others were, and it makes all the difference in eternity. Let's distribute the elements. I hope you're encouraged this morning by what you have in Christ. I want you to consider the power that comes from the body and the blood of Christ. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, was killed by brutal men, was buried and was raised from the dead. By this act, he established a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and to be committed to the gospel is to be committed to the only king who ever conquered death, the only one who is not currently dead or dying. We take the supper as ambassadors of the kingdom of Christ, who are committed to the gospel so that we might be committed to others in the love of Christ. With that in mind, take and eat. Take a drink. Lord, as we continue in worship, I pray for spirit, I pray for truth, I pray for power in Christ. As we give, let us give wholeheartedly, trusting you, thankful for the provision you've given us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.